Hello and welcome to the Daily Claims Podcast, where we talk about life as an insurance adjuster from the perspective of property, auto, liability, and workers' compensation adjusters. My goal is to bring interesting topics in the world of claims adjusting to people who are working as an adjuster now and to people who are considering a career as a claims adjuster. So today's topic is workers' compensation. And rather than focus on one topic, there are four current issues that I'm going to cover here. We're going to have a kind of a hot take on these uh, recent news stories. The first one is a new law in New York State that's causing a bit of a dust-up in Albany. The second story is going to be about COVID-19 and workers' compensation. Finally, we'll wrap it up with the Supreme Court's take on medical cannabis for workers' compensation claims. All right, so first let's go to Albany. As many of you know, I'm based here in New York State, so I like to learn a little bit about what's going on in Albany. And there is a proposed bill that is coming across Governor Hochul's desk soon that relates to proposed workers' compensation changes. The law provides additional benefits for milder injuries, and it makes an injured worker's ability to seek additional benefits easier. So the main focus of this law relates to the differences between someone who is partially disabled and someone who is totally disabled. Partially disabled people typically have fewer benefits than someone with total disability. And it kind of makes sense if you think about it. If I'm partially disabled, that means that I can work a little bit, but not to my full capacity. Therefore, I could collect some pay, but not all of it. Therefore, my compensation for wages under the workers' compensation scheme would be lower than someone who's totally disabled because they can't feasibly earn any income. But under this new proposed law, someone who is partially disabled can still receive the full benefit that a totally disabled person would collect unless the employer can provide suitable light duty work instead. So another thing that this law does is it provides a definition for temporary total disability under New York state law. Apparently there was no definition for this previously. Now temporary total disability means that you are totally disabled from work but on a temporary basis. So as with any new law or bill or anything going on in government, there's always two sides to every story. And the proponents of this believe that it will help injured workers, which it seems to make sense that it would, and that it would help employers because it would get people back to work sooner, I think is the argument. I'm not sure my head wraps completely around that one. Now, the people in opposition to this new law believe that the only people that are going to benefit from it are the attorneys representing injured workers. Furthermore, they believe that this is going to increase workers' compensation rates, making it harder for small businesses in New York State to operate. So there's another section of this proposed legislation that prohibits a court from using a prior decision from the Workers' Compensation Board about an injured worker's case to deny them an additional trial. So opponents of this say that that's unfair, that you shouldn't be able to come back and retry a case just to see if you can have more time off and collect more benefits. Once a decision is made, that should be binding. Opponents believe that this law could result in a 20% hike in workers' compensation costs. Proponents argue that the legislation actually makes the employer get involved in the claim and encourages them to provide light-duty work for that worker, bringing them back into the workforce. As I'm reading up on this, it's very clear to me that people on both sides of this issue are arguing ad nauseum, and it 
remains to be seen how Governor Hochul will react to it. Apparently it is on her desk and she hasn't commented about it, but she is reviewing it. And so we'll have to sit back and wait and see. And maybe when we do our next workers' compensation talk, we will bring it up again. The next topic doesn't relate to New York State specifically, but this is a COVID-19 workers' compensation update. When a worker contracts COVID-19, you would have to imagine that it'd be very difficult to prove that they got it at work. Almost impossible, really. But it's also impossible to prove that they didn't. So in response to that conundrum, what certain states have done is created a presumption for workers' compensation benefits. Throughout 2020 and 2021, 18 states across the country established a COVID-19 presumption through legislation, directives, or emergency rules or executive orders. This presumption mostly relates to certain classes of workers. For example, people who work in hospitals. That's probably the best example. If you work in a hospital and you contract COVID-19 in these 18 states, the presumption is that you contracted it at work and it is a compensable workers' compensation claim. Now, most, if not all of these states and I haven't gone through the entire list of what their rules are. But generally, these presumptions apply to first responders, healthcare providers, and certain classes of other essential employees. So they're limited to the type of worker, but they're also limited in time, with the idea being that COVID-19 was going to fade away over time and that these presumptions should not need to be in place forever. So there's a long list of states that are currently working on similar legislation that that maybe they don't have it in place yet. So, you know, whatever state you work in, pay attention to the laws and these presumptions and find out if they're, they're going to enact these presumptions and find out what the covered workers are and find out when these presumptions may end because most of them have kind of a sunset date attached to them. Now, from my reading, New York State does not and did not have any applicable presumption And of all of the states that did, there's only a handful of them that still have it in place. California expires on January 1st, 2023. California expires January 1st, 2023. In Minnesota, it expires January 13th, 2023. In New Mexico, it's effective until the governor rescinds the executive order there. In Tennessee, there's an infectious disease presumption with no sunset provisions. And in Texas, the presumption expires on September 1st, 2023. Now in Virginia, there is a rule for death or disability occurring on or after March 20th, 2020 and prior to December 31st, 2022. And then finally, Washington state has an infectious disease presumption which expires when their state of emergency is revoked. And I don't know what the status of that state of emergency is now, but uh, for all I know, it could be revoked now. So the presumptions address, as I said, kind of a sticky problem where we don't know any way to prove whether someone contracted COVID-19 at work or at home or in the public. But I understand that, you know, certain classes of workers, this is very important. However, you also have to understand that keeping these types of presumptions in place could be very costly to the workers' compensation system. Putting these presumptions in place with some sort of expiration date seems to make sense I think at some point fairness will become an issue. If you contract COVID, you know, the day after the expiration date of one of these presumptions and you know you caught it at work because of a coworker or maybe you are 
working in the COVID unit of a hospital and you get sick and now all of a sudden because of this sunset date, you're no longer able to collect worker, workers' compensation benefits, I could see where that could be a problem, and I could see where lawyers could get involved. As with all things COVID, this adds layers of complication to an already complicated system. Looks like this is something that's uh, going to be changing over time here, so we will keep posted on this and report accordingly. For our next story, we're going to go to Washington State. This story involves a dispute between the federal government and state law in Washington. The story revolves around the Hanford Nuclear Reservation, which is a decommissioned nuclear facility uh, near the Columbia River. At this site, the federal government uh, used the property to produce nuclear weapons, and there are many hazards associated with working at that site during the cleanup operations, which are still ongoing. So at the heart of this dispute is a concept known as intergovernmental immunity, and it relates to the Constitution's Supremacy Clause. This immunizes the federal government from state laws that directly regulate or discriminate against it. So you can't have a state law that discriminates or harms the federal government. So in theory, what this could mean is that if intergovernmental immunity was in effect, that people who are working on the Hanford site to conduct cleanup operations would have no access to standard workers' compensation benefits for work-related injuries or diseases. So to circumvent that, in 1936, Congress saw that there was a potential gap in workers' compensation benefits. So they created a waiver that authorized the application of state workers' compensation benefits and allowed benefits to be paid for people who were working on this federal site. So working at a hazardous cleanup site like this can be very dangerous to workers. And over time, what seems to have happened is that the federal government was singled out as responsible for more damages than just state-based workers' compensation costs. And that really is the inception of this dispute in the resulting lawsuit. So the question really was whether or not that 1936 waiver allowed for additional benefits or additional costs outside of standard state-based workers' compensation. And in this recent decision, the court held that Congress did not do that at all. Justice Breyer said that waivers of intragovernmental immunity, like the 1936 waiver, requires a clear congressional mandate. He said that this waiver does not clearly and unambiguously authorize a state to enact a discriminatory law that facially singles out the federal government for unfavorable treatment. So I'm not exactly clear on what the additional benefits or damages that would be found against the federal government in these cases were, but I think it's clear that intergovernmental immunity is still very strong in the United States and that a waiver has to be very clear about what is being waived if Congress decides that they are going to uh, you know, waive any immunity that the federal government has. Okay, moving on, let's talk about the Supreme Court's take on medical cannabis for workers' compensation. So two petitions were filed with the Supreme Court challenging a Minnesota decision that would refuse to allow coverage for medical cannabis through the state's workers' compensation program. So in these cases, uh, workers 
were seeking a review of a Minnesota Supreme Court decision that said that the Federal Controlled Substances Act, it's the CSA, superseded state law. And that because of the CSA, that resulted in a denial of coverage for medicinal cannabis, only for workers' injuries, work-related injuries. A denial of coverage for medicinal cannabis for employees' work-related injuries. So what did the Supreme Court say about this? Well, they denied the petition to hear the cases. So they're not even going to get involved. Now, it's interesting. The Justice Department agreed with the Minnesota court that the CSA does, in fact, preempt state law. Now, if you look at a cross-section of state decisions across the country, there's varying ideas as to whether or not the CSA applies and whether or not medicinal marijuana should be legal for workers' compensation claims. So we have this constant conflict between federal law and state law when it comes to legalized cannabis. And over the coming years, this is something that has to be sorted out. I think most people in the cannabis industry would prefer to see the states take this over. I think they would also love to see the federal CSA reclassify cannabis. I think they would have preferred also that the Supreme Court would actually say something about this. Justice Clarence Thomas is quoted as saying, a prohibition on intrastate use or cultivation of marijuana may no longer be necessary or proper to support the federal government's piecemeal approach. So it sounds as if they're leaning toward leaving this to the states and that any prohibitions on the federal level are probably outdated and need to be changed. Well, that about wraps up today's workers' compensation news summary. Uh, We cover workers' compensation once a month, and the other weeks during the month, we will be covering property claims, auto claims, and general liability claims. Thanks for joining us again on the Daily Claims Podcast, where we talk about life as an insurance adjuster. I'd love it if you'd subscribe today and tell all of your adjuster friends to check us out as well. If you are in need of adjusting services, please visit www.auton.claims. And if you're interested in working as an independent liability adjuster, please go to www.auton.claims FQS and scroll all the way down to the bottom. There's a skills assessment button there. And if you click on that, you can fill out your information and we'll get back to you right away.